The following audio is from Abner Creek Baptist Church. For more information, visit www.abnercreekbaptist.com. And join with me at turning over to 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 14. 1 Corinthians chapter 14 is where we'll be. We're going to, Lord willing, look at verses 13 through 25 today. Last week we looked at the first 12 verses of chapter 14, and uh, some of you sat uh, with much fear and trepidation as I navigated the topic of speaking in tongues and prophecy uh, in a Baptist church. Uh, well, I'm still with fear and trepidation, but I know this is in the Word of God. And so we can say, well, this doesn't necessarily affect us, or we can say, God, in His sovereign wisdom, in what He knows, which is everything, and with the way that He loves us, which is beyond where we would ever love ourselves, has saw fit to put this in. And we need this. We need this today. Um, If you missed last week, we did compare and contrast speaking in tongues, which is largely private. It's, It's not understood by any with prophecy, which is which is not on, the, on par, on the same level with Scripture itself, but it is from God, and it's a word given through the body to one another. It's an encouraging word. It's profound, and it's from God, and it helps and encourages and strengthens. And Paul, in that, those first 12 verses, begins to say, look, prophecy is really what you should strive for, because in prophecy, others are built up, but in tongues, no one is helped. So he encourages them in the midst of the gathered worship service to strive for prophecy. Well, we left off last week with this verse in verse 12. I want to read it before I read my text. Verse 12 says, So with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. Strive to excel in building up the church. Which begs the question, since Paul exhorts them and us to strive to excel in building up the church. And since he is, we saw so many times him say, when you come together. Since he is talking about their and our corporate Sunday morning gathered service. Then the question is, in the context of worship, what type of worship builds up the church. What type or what kind of worship builds the church? I would say to you that many of us have experienced, sadly, where fights are going on within a church about what kind of worship builds the church. People are still fighting over styles of music, worship wars. It's, it's an indictment against the church in this 21st century, that there should even be a phrase, worship wars. There's coming a day, Revelation reveals to us, when Christ will be on his throne and there will be no war between the saints of God. It will be settled in the hearts of all of us. And he alone is worthy of our worship. Sadly, today there are still churches that are fighting and churches that are splitting and causing ugly scenes over what type of worship should we sing? What type of music should we have in our church? But I would propose to you that a majority of those fights are not 
necessarily over a sense of wanting to see God and come to a place of awe in His presence. And most of those fights are rooted in familiarity and personal preference and what I like and what I grew up with. Let it not be. Instead, well, I would say this, that I think in most churches today where worship wars are going on, most people are not thinking about God at all. Instead, most people in churches today are busy thinking of themselves. I would even say that the tendency, the temptation for us here is for us to come in to the Sunday morning gathered service, and the temptation is for us to think of ourselves. We ask questions like, will the music be good today? Which is rooted in, will I like the music? We ask questions like, will the sermon be useful to me? Which is rooted in, will the pastor say anything that's going to benefit me? We ask questions like, will the stories be funny and entertaining? Will we get out on time? And I would say to you that this is exactly what was going on in Corinth. The members in this church in Corinth, where Paul is writing this letter to, they were obsessed with the spectacular. They weren't asking questions like, will we get out on time and those sort of things, but they were obsessed with what was spectacular, particularly the gift of speaking in tongues. And they believed that this particular gift of speaking in tongues, the ability to speak this, this language from God, was a distinguishing mark of the presence of God. That if they could speak in tongues, that it meant that they were really spiritual, that they were hyper, super spiritual, if you will, and that all those others, maybe there was some presence of God, but maybe not. But if I could display to you speaking in tongues, it meant that God was really with me. There is indeed a type of worship that shows that God is really among us. But seeking to elevate ourselves in the eyes of others or demanding our own way is not it. Let's look at that kind of worship that builds a church in our passage today. Begin reading with me in chapter 14 at verse 13. Therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray for the power to interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he does not know what you are saying? For you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. In the law it is written, By people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners will I speak to this people. And even, when, even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Thus tongues are a sign not for believers but for unbelievers, while prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers, but for believers. If, therefore, the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are out of your minds? 
But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all. He's called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. Now, this morning, I am dependent on God to speak through me to convey to you what's here in this passage. So before I dive into the sermon, let's pray together. God, we come before this text, and God, I tremble because this is a difficult text. But God, when it all comes down to it, Lord, they're all difficult. Because we, by nature, by the sinful nature, it is ours through our first father, Adam, we don't like to hear truth. We run from truth often. But God, we pray by your grace that you would help us to have the ears of our second father. That just as Jesus prayed, nevertheless, not what I will, but your will be done. God, that you would sweep through this gathering. And God, that that would be the consensus as we look at your word today. Speak through me in a powerful way, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I want to answer this question. I think this text reveals this question, the, the answer to this question of what type of worship, what kind of worship builds the church. So first off, there are three here, three sections in these verses. I'll, I'll give you all three of them. Number one is this. The type of worship that builds the church is worship that is offered in spirit and in truth. Worship that is offered in spirit and in truth. We see this in verses 13 through 15. A common view of, uh, in Paul's day was that the spirit and the mind were at odds with one another. In Paul's day, this was a common thing. Plato, he wrote, to be filled by God entails relinquishing one's own thoughts to make room for God. Philo wrote, when the divine light enters the mind, naturally ecstasy and divine possession uh, and madness fall upon us. For when the light of God shines, the human light sets. When the divine light sets, the human dawns and rises. See, the common belief or view of the day was that, that if you were going to be spiritual or do anything with God, you had to just shut your brain off and let God take over. And for Paul, he says, this is not to be the case. This is not a mindless religion. You know the world says this about us, don't you? You know the world says that we who follow Christ are idiots. That we don't think for ourselves. That we're just weak and fearful people. To which I would say, we are indeed weak and fearful people in need of a Savior who is strong and who saves us. But it doesn't mean that we shut our minds off. Christianity is one of the most thinking religions. It's not even a religion, but it's, we, we're thinking people. God reveals himself not by feelings or by taking people over, per se. He reveals himself through spoken and written word. So we should be a people that think Paul never condemns tongues. It's important for us to notice that. In verse 15, he says, what am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. 
It does, however, teach that speaking in tongues have no place in public worship unless they are accompanied by interpretation. He tells them in verse 14, he says, one who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret. And then in verse 28, he says, if there is no one to interpret, let each one of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God. And in so doing, when he says this, when he doesn't condemn speaking in tongues, but he relegates it to holding it to private, what he's doing is he's showing that when we gather together, we should be a people that worship in spirit, led by the Spirit, but we should also be people that worship in truth. That when we come together, that we should be spirit-led people. But we should also celebrate the Word. These things are not opposed to each other. These things are not at odds with one another. That we can be spiritual and intelligent. That we can be emotional and rational. That we can be passionate and articulate. Many of us have attended churches where it felt more like the frozen chosen, right? Where you go in and it's just dead. And you think, boy, they know a lot of truth, but man, do they believe it? Does it make them happy? Are they celebrating this? We've probably also been part of churches or attended churches where it seemed to be happy and they were passionate and people were running and crying and laughing and celebrating and all this sort of thing. But what was being said was so far from the truth. And what Paul here says is that we must be a people that when we gather, that we must celebrate the things of God. We must be led by the Spirit. And it's not wrong for us to be passionate and emotional in how we respond to the truth of God. But that that should be rooted in the truth of God. And this is, I think, what was going on, what Jesus is partly explaining to the woman at the well in Samaria. In John chapter 4, let me just read you the account. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know know for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. You see, for the Jews, the Jews worshipped out of truth. The truth had been revealed to them. The law was given to them. The prophets had spoken to them and revealed the truth of this coming Messiah. But oftentimes in their worship there was no emotion to it. There was no passion to it. There was no heartfelt directiveness in it. Instead, it was abiding by the law. And the Samaritans, they did not have the truth. Those outside, those Gentiles, they didn't have the truth, but they worshipped what they sensed, what they knew. Romans talks about that it's been revealed to us that there is a God. That we look at creation and we say, there's got to be someone behind this that's made this. So they worshipped in spirit, knowing that there must be something out there, but they were devoid of truth. They didn't know his name. The gospel had not come to them. But when Jesus came and went to the cross 
and died there for the sins of all who would ever believe. And when he was raised from the dead, and when he sent out the, the, the church to the nations, truth went to the nations. And now those that had formerly worshipped what they did not know simply in spirit ways now could worship in spirit and truth. And for those of us here now, what that means is that, that we know who He is and that ought to affect and impact the way we respond to Him. For Paul, this meant having a deeply personal devotional life and a vibrant and passionate public expression of worship with other believers. For us, what this means is that, that the kind of worship that God uses to build His church is one that does not start, per se, when we gather on Sunday mornings at 10.30. It starts in the hearts of His people as they privately... Look at what Paul says. Look, if you speak in a tongue, you should pray for the gift of interpretation. But what will I do? I will continue to pray in the Spirit, but I will also pray with my mind. I will sing with my spirit. I will sing with my mind. What Paul's talking about here is that in his personal life, through the week, that he communed with God. That he didn't live a life that was devoid of truth and spirit through the week and just came together and then, then expected to sort of put on a show, if you will. But that the kind of worship that God uses to build His church starts authentically in the hearts of His people during the week as they pour over the Word of God because they want to know the God of the Word. And it leads them to sing songs that, that well up and come out of hearts that are glad, that are responding to the truth. That they pray and they talk with this God that they know intimately because He has revealed Himself through the truth of His Word and the truth of the Word. Jesus. The kind of worship that God uses to build His church starts personally, but it doesn't stay personally. This is probably the downfall of many churches across our land is because many of the members don't see themselves as being interrelated and have any responsibility to one another at all. We have been called not simply to personal, private devotion. We have been called to public expressions of devotion and worship together. So what starts in us in the week carries over into this place so that also we come in this place and we sing loud. And we celebrate in this place because we know the truth of our God, that our sins have been eradicated, wiped away because Christ came, that we are seen as completely righteous in Him, that not only are we forgiven, but we've been made right because of His life and His sacrifice. And there's coming a day when all of this world is going to be reconciled to Him. And we celebrate that. This is the kind of worship that God uses to build His church. Worship that is in spirit and truth. Secondly is this. The second type of worship that God uses to build His church is worship that seeks to instruct other believers. Look at verses 16 through 19 again. He says, Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, he's talking about here in the midst of the gathered congregation as they are speaking in tongues. As they're speaking in tongues. If you give thanks with your spirit, if you speak in tongues, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say, Amen? 
to your thanksgiving when he doesn't know what you are saying. For you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. It's important for us to realize who he's talking about when he refers to outsiders here. When he says, if an outsider hears you doing this, he's not going to be built up. Who is he talking about? Well, he's obviously not talking about unbelievers here. Some say he is, but I don't believe he is because we, we would not expect an unbeliever to say amen. In the midst of gathered corporate worship, if you're here today and you're an unbeliever, you're just sort of seeking this thing out, trying to figure this thing out, or maybe you're here because someone invited you, you you're not into this whole Christian thing, we don't expect you to say amen. Because to say amen is to give affirmation, to say, that's true. I believe that. I affirm that. I wholeheartedly support that. So I don't think he's here talking about unbelievers. Nor is, is Paul interested in seeing unbelievers built up. He's not talking about unbelievers. He, he's interested in seeing unbelievers converted, seeing them come to faith in Christ. But he doesn't want to simply build them up with encouragement and positive speech. So if he's not talking about unbelievers, then who is he talking about? I believe it's this. I believe that what's going on in this church is as they're valuing speaking in tongues above all other things, they are alienating certain people who may not have the gift of speaking in tongues, but they're alienating not, not, only, not only those people, but everyone, because when they speak, no one knows what they're saying. So there are all these different factions within this church. Have you ever been in a situation where you felt like an outsider? You walk up on a conversation, you have no idea what's going on. And maybe you walked up at the wrong time and you kind of think, whoa, not sure what's going on here. This is what was going on in the gathering. People were made to feel like outsiders because they were holding on to this, trying to elevate themselves, trying to show themselves as being really spiritual, as really having the presence of God. That, that phrase, I'm going to keep saying that, that's important. They want to show that they really have the presence of God. So Paul here, I think, is talking to those fellow believers who were being alienated by those who insisted on speaking in tongues. So let's read verses 18 and 19 with that understanding. Verses 18 and 19, he says, I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Paul here is saying, my concern for my brothers should far outweigh my concern for my own status, for my own comfort, for my own desire. I mean, look at the contrast. Is not 10,000 words quite the contrast with five? What could you say with 10,000 words? In, in college, when I would have to write papers, and they would tell us how many words have to be in this paper, I used to hate that. I'm not a writer, cannot stand to write. What could you say with 10,000 words? What could you say with five? Good morning, how are you? It's five words. Contrast 10,000 words. Paul says, for the sake of my brother, I would rather speak five words that are going to instruct and build him up than have 10,000 words of vocabulary at my tongue that forget about my brother or my sister. 
Paul is here displaying for us great attitude, great love for brothers and sisters. And I would tell you, church, that sometimes we can be guilty of not taking our brothers and sisters into consideration with some of our practices, can't we? You ever been in a church where you, you just, you're lost the entire time? You don't know what's going on. Everybody there knows what's going on. I mean, they all know this is, you know, you stand here, you sit here, you speak out here, you sing here, you know, all these different things. What are we doing now? Oh, it's time for Bible study. Okay, we're going there. We sometimes fail to take our brothers and sisters into consideration with things like the words that we use, some of the practices that we have, some of our preferences. And you need to know that as your pastor... I am praying that our gatherings would increasingly become a place where we bring one another along. Where we, where we look at our brother and sister and we say, they're not where they need to be yet. Let me, let me sacrifice my own desires so that I might help bring them along. Where others that are further along than us would look back to us and say, by the grace of God, I can put my own preferences down so that I might bring him or her with me. I'm praying that we would increasingly be concerned for one another. We talk about being a faith family, and I believe God's making great strides in us in that area. But we're not where we need to be yet. And I'm praying that that God would build his church by establishing this type of worship in us, one that looks across the aisles to one another and says, you're my sister, you're my brother, come along. Third type of worship that God uses to build his church, and I'll spend the bulk of our time here, is worship that proclaims the truth about God to unbelievers. Worship that proclaims the truth about God to unbelievers. Now, you need to hear me, and I'll probably say this again, but what he's talking about here when he talks about prophecy, remember, prophecy is not just the pastor standing and preaching. Prophecy is what takes place within the body as believers who have been indwelt, filled with the Spirit of God, speak things that are true to one another, that we encourage one another with our words. That at times we rebuke one another with our words. That we exhort one another. And that God uses that to speak into the lives of other believers. So here, just know that as we look at this. Look at verses 20, um, beginning in verse 20. Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. This is twice now that he's called them children. Don't, don't miss the fact that the church in Corinth is the church gone wild. They're immature. They've not grown up. They have so many issues and so many problems. He says to them, be infants in evil, but in your thinking, be mature. He says to them, look, you're claiming that you are this level of spirituality, that you're super spiritual because you can speak in tongues. But what happens is, when I look at your life, there's some things in your life that that don't match the life of someone who's spiritual. I mean, if we think back over this book together, can't we remember how members of this church were lining up behind their favorite preachers and teachers, segregating themselves off from others and saying, this is who I follow. 
Can't we remember times where Paul has to confront them because there's sexual immorality going on in the church and of a kind that is not even tolerated by the Gentiles, by by those, the, the pagans. Instead, in this church, they're not only tolerating it, but they are celebrating it. They are encouraging it. They are, in this church, when they come together for the Lord's Supper, they are getting drunk off the wine and leaving those who have nothing out in the cold. And Paul says to them, look, don't be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. He says, look, you've got it backwards. Your thinking is immature, and you are mature in evil. I got way ahead of myself there, but I'll try to figure out where I am. He says, in the law it is written, by people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners will I speak to this people, and even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Thus tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers, while prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers, but for believers. To show them the error of their thinking, when he says to them, be mature in your thinking, he wants to show them where your thinking is wrong. To do this, he points back to, he says, it's written in the law. And he, and he quotes this verse, which is a reference back to Isaiah chapter 28, verses 11 and 12. In verses 11 and 12 of Isaiah 28, he says, it says, For by people of strange lips and with a foreign tongue, the Lord will speak to this people to whom he has said, This is rest, give rest to the weary, and this is repose, yet they would not hear. So what in the world is Paul saying? This is where this passage gets really difficult and really confusing. So if you're about to start dozing or about to start nodding off, have somebody poke you because it's going to get more boring. Okay, so you've got to really listen right here. When Paul looks back to the law, back to Isaiah, the foreign tongue that, that is referred to there is, a, is not the tongue of of, of what's going on here in the church in Corinth. It's not speaking in tongues. Remember, the Spirit has not come yet. Instead, it's a reference to the tongue of the Assyrians, this Assyrian army that was sent by God to bring judgment on the people of Israel. They wouldn't listen to the prophet Isaiah. They instead sought peace and all these other things in other means instead of finding them in God. And God says, okay, that's the route you want to go. I'm going to speak to you with a foreign tongue. I'm sending an Assyrian army to discipline you. So that's important. What Paul's saying to them is that tongues in the Old Testament are not a symbol of God's blessing, but instead a symbol of curse, judgment. Now, hang with me. This gets... This gets very confusing, but I think it can be better understood as we walk through verses 23 through 25. When Paul says in verse 22, tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers, while prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers, but for believers, we find out the meaning to this in verses 23 through 25. Verse 23, if therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues and outsiders or unbelievers enter, Will they not say that you are out of your minds? Now, this is a hypothetical situation. Paul has now left the illustration of going back to Isaiah, and now he's come back to the church at Corinth, and he says, okay, let's think about this. If we're in your, your gathering, and everybody there, everybody, the whole church comes together, if everybody there comes together, and everybody speaks in tongues, and all of a sudden, 
an outsider or an unbeliever. Now he's changed the word just a little bit. Now he's not so much talking about those in the congregation that don't understand and are being alienated. Now he's including those that are outside of the congregation that are not saved, that are still in their sin. And he says, if they come in and they see everybody speaking in tongues, what will their conclusion be? Y'all are out of your minds, right? You have lost your mind. These people are crazy. And they will leave unhelped and still condemned in their sin. Therefore, tongues for the unbeliever is a sign, it's a symbol of judgment. They come in and they walk away unhelped and unsaved. They are still in their sin. They are without God. They are without hope in this world. Where, un- where believers gather to worship in confusion and insist on their own way, unbelievers go away lost. Do you hear me? Where believers gather to worship in confusion and insist on their own way, unbelievers go away lost. We, church, must continually ask ourselves, is our worship clear in proclaiming the gospel? Does our worship confuse and alienate unbelievers. Thabiti Aniabwile, who's the pastor of First Baptist Church of Grand Cayman, said this, Will our meetings witness effectively to the saving work of Christ, or will they shut the door of heaven because of their confusion? Look, as your pastor, I don't ever want someone to walk away from one of our services having the door of heaven shut because we were confusing and unclear about the gospel. We're not talking here, this is important, we're not talking here about removing the offense of the gospel because let's face it, to a sinner, the gospel's offensive. When you tell someone you have rebelled against God, and you are deserving of punishment. They don't like that. We're not talking about making the gospel palatable. We're not talking about removing the offense or the sting. We declare the whole gospel that we are sinners deserving the wrath of God, but that God in His mercy, His grace, His love sent His own Son who bore the wrath for us. So that if we, by faith, would look to Him, we might be forgiven. And we might have His righteousness given to us. And one day we might live and worship God throughout all eternity. We still declare the whole gospel. But we must continually ask ourselves, are our gatherings confusing? Or are they clear? Look at verses 24 and 25. But if all prophesy, here's, again, hypothetical. If, if nobody now is speaking in tongues, but now everyone is prophesying. Remember what we said about prophecy? That it's believers speaking to one another the things that are true, encouraging one another, edifying one another, exhorting one another. If everyone's doing that, and an unbeliever or outsider enters... He is convicted by all. He is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed. And so, falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. 
Notice this result. I want to walk through these because I just want you to see that when the church is worshiping in a way that speaks clearly the gospel to unbelievers, that when unbelievers come into our midst and they see, not, they hear the witness of the pastor, but not just the witness of the pastor, but they, they hear the witness of a congregation as they gossip the gospel. They are convicted, don't miss those two words, by all. See, it's not just the pastor's responsibility. Don't, don't underestimate the power of your voice corporately together as we pursue Christ. The unbeliever in attendance is convicted by all. He's called to account by all. When the, when the whole church worships well, when they gossip the gospel, there is a deep work of the Holy Spirit that takes place in the lives of unbelievers who watch from a distance. The secrets, this is, again in the text, the secrets of his heart are disclosed. I've often had the experience of preaching a sermon and have someone come up to me after the sermon and say, it was like I was the only one in the room. Or have someone come up to me and say, how did you know? Did, did my wife call you? No wife has ever called me. It's the work of the Spirit. Gordon Fee says this, The story of the fall, in Genesis 3, the story of the fall, suggests that one of its first effects on humanity is their great sense of need to hide from the living God. It's the folly of our sinfulness that allows us to think we can. Thus, one of the sure signs of the presence of God in the believing community is the deep, plowing work of the Spirit, whereby through prophetic revelation, the secrets of the heart are laid bare. No wonder the Corinthians preferred tongues, he says. It not only gave them a sense of being more truly spiritual, but it was safer. I want to be a dangerous place. I want to be a place where people come in and the secrets of their hearts are laid bare. Not so that we can all pile on. But so the Spirit of God can do His work through the Word of God in bringing that person to reconciliation. Look at what happens. He's convicted by all. He's called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed. He, he feels this need to, to answer to God somehow. And he falls on his face and worships God. This is a picture here. This is, this is Paul's way of saying he is converted. He's saved in this moment. It's not from necessarily hearing the witness of the preacher. It's the witness of the congregation that leads him to this place. And then look at the final thing that happens. He declares that God is really among them. Wasn't this what they were indeed wanting everyone to know about themselves? Well, if I speak in tongues, they will know that God's really with me. And they will know that I am super spiritual. And they will know that God's on my side. And in the end, it's not tongues that leads to this confession. It is the clear proclamation of the prophetic gospel through the voice of the congregation that leads the unbeliever to say 
God's really among them. Let it be, church, let it be that unbelievers who come into contact with this gathering walk away with that on their lips. God is really among them. Let's pray. God, I have sensed your help all through this sermon. And God, now it would be sinful and arrogant for me to think that I could now take it over. God, I am asking you to do a work in the hearts and the minds of your people. Call them to yourself. Call them to repentance. Call them to faith for your namesake. Amen. We want to give you a time where you reflect on what's been said. We want you to think about the Word of God because the Word of God requires action from us. It requires obedience. It requires us not simply to hear and let those words simply just float away somewhere. But instead, God calls us to obey, to step out on faith. And so maybe in the context of this sermon, there has been something that God has spoken to you that requires an action from you. Maybe you're here and you need today to give your life to the Lord instead of giving it to these other things. You need to turn from your sin and trust Christ as your only hope of being made right with God. Well, if that's you, I'm going to be seated right down here on the front. And I want you to feel free. I want you to come and talk to me. There's nothing about talking to me that, that saves you. God alone, through the work of Christ, saves you. It's between you and Him. But if I can help you in some way to know what to do, how to, how, to, how to express this, what to do next, I would love to talk with you. Maybe you're here today and you hear us talk about wanting to be a congregation that is built by worship and worship in the right ways. And you say, that's the church where God's leading me. And this may be the church where God's calling you to join. Then again, I'll be down here. And if you'd like today to present yourself for membership here at Abner Creek, we'd love to receive you begin that conversation. Maybe you're here today and maybe there's just something that God has sort of just in the middle of, his, of, of the sermon and the word just spoken to you and maybe it's just something else right where you are that you need to just take care of. Maybe it's to get alone with God and pray. Maybe it's to go to somebody in this congregation. Maybe it's, to, maybe it's just to sing. Ethan and I were talking this week about This song at the end, it's not just part of the formality of a service in a Southern Baptist church. This song is built in here for us to respond. And that responding is not just for those who need to walk an aisle. Responding sometimes is us in the midst of the rows just singing the truths of these songs to our God. So however God leads you today, Respond to him. Let's worship our God. This time of teaching is brought to you by Abner Creek Baptist Church. For more information, visit www.abnercreekbaptist.com.